Welcome to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. Recreational marijuana is legal in Ohio, and although sales don't officially start until about the end of this year, that doesn't mean people aren't getting high. Whether your cannabis comes from gummies or smoking, pot has a different effect on your body than alcohol, which means there are different rules for when it's safe and not safe to get behind the wheel of your car. Joining me to help us understand this is Bridget Freisteller, a professor in the College of Social Work at The Ohio State University. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you for having me. You've been researching how people consume marijuana and alcohol for years, whether dis- dispensary density affects consumption to how to accurately measure drinking at college parties. So I have to ask, what got you interested in this kind of work? Um, I happened to have this really wonderful opportunity as a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, and started working with a research center called the Prevention Research Center. And they were doing just really cutting edge work, looking at how you change the alcohol environment to reduce alcohol related problems. And we find that those problems, it can, it's, it can have longer sustainability. Um, and so I really got interested in that. Then when I moved to Los Angeles to be faculty at UCLA, it was hard not to trans- translate that and to start looking at dispensaries. There are so many, there was so much around the legislation happening at the time that it was really an interesting time to see what was going on before any regulation really happened. So it's safe to assume from your research that as recreational cannabis becomes more available over the next year, we should expect consumption to increase. Is that fair? Absolutely, yes. And let's start with a simple joint. If you if you smoke one, how long should you wait to drive? Oh, that's not such an easy question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like alcohol, right? You take a drink, you wait an hour, you're good to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because part of it has to do with the fact that the THC level, um, the CBD content is different um, in different strains. And so you really have to pay attention. It's, it's, you know, back, I'm going to sound old, but back in the day, you know, marijuana didn't have the strength that it has now. And so because there is such a wide variety on how strong it is, that also impacts it. If you're eating, we know that those effects are delayed. And so if you're doing a gummy or a brownie or something like that that has cannabis in it, you're not going to see those effects for a while yet. And so that's going to lengthen that time even more. So the general rule of thumb of what we're seeing right now is between four and six hours. Um, but, you know, that's from the time that you stop consuming. So if you're, you know, vaping and you're kind of going continuously, it's a little bit harder to figure that out. Yeah, I, um, you know, compare different strengths of marijuana to different kinds of alcohol. So there's a big difference, for example, between drinking eight ounces of wine and eight ounces of tequila. Is that kind of a fair comparison? It is, although I will tell you, even with alcohol, the alcohol by volume has changed so much that it's that even that is starting to break down a little bit. You know, we're seeing beers that used to be in the, you know, four and a half, 6% ABV, now you have beers with 9.5% and 10%. So it's a good analogy. It's still, you know, things are changing even on the alcohol side. Yeah, particularly with microbrews, you can see some high alcohol content, which is is fair because one one microbrew could have as much as two Bud Lights. (laughs) 
Exactly. Yes. And, you know, I think you raised a really good point with edibles in particular, because they do take longer to kick in, which is to sort of say, don't eat a second 30 minutes after the first because you aren't feeling anything yet. So, yes, very, very true. And and we see that a lot, particularly in people when, you know, right now, Ohio is in this weird bubble where we we say we're going to have it recreational. We're now figuring out what the legislation is and people are now getting curious. So as they start to sort of figure it out, you know, there are going to be more people who have not had cannabis in some time, you know, trying these different products. They're going to be trying the gummies. They're going to be trying the brownies and they're not going to know how their body's going to react. And we do see people who will take it and say, I don't feel anything and take another. And that can lead to cannabis poisoning. And so you really have to pay attention. Um, in some states, they have what a dose is of a brownie because a brownie in and of itself might be eight doses of marijuana. So even if you eat the whole brownie, you could be overdoing it a bit. Yeah, you've heard that with uh, chocolate bars, too. They'll make a, a cannabis chocolate bar and each little square, like you think of those little Hershey squares, is an individual dose. That's exactly it. And so the whole chocolate bar is like the whole bottle of tequila. Yes, and we gener generally don't recommend that either. <laughs> um, how much marijuana would it take to make a person impaired? And what I mean by that is, you know, there's this rule of thumb is if like you have a glass of wine with dinner while you're out, most people are probably okay to go ahead and drive home. Is that is there any correlation with cannabis? So that's that's interesting. We're still trying to figure that out, to be honest. Um, we have. Ohio has rules that if you have 10 nanograms per milliliter of urine or two nanograms per milliliter of blood, nobody really knows what a nanogram is, by the way. <laughs> um, but that is sort of that at that, you know, you have too much cannabis in your system to really be impaired. They say that it's sort of a, you know, 15 nanograms of a marijuana metabolite. You know, you get up to 35 nanograms. That's really a huge problem. So, you know, if you're smoking one joint, what the, again, the guidance is wait four to six hours, you know? And so again, generally people don't just consume one joint at a time. Um, some do, but a lot don't. And so that then delays your ability to get in a car and drive safely for a longer period of time. I want to shift and talk a little bit about medical strains because they're very often high in CBD and low in THC, the psychoactive part of cannabis. Are there different rules for medical patients who are perhaps using those high CBD strains? So right now, nobody's nobody's making those those differences. Um, it is just it, they're looking at the amount of cannabis in your saliva, in your urine, in your blood, and making determinations based on that. And so at this point, whether it's for medical use, um, it is not often a consideration. But CBD by itself, right? CBD made from hemp is considered safe yes. to take and drive. Yes. Um, how do you, do you find that the, I guess it's like a really hard question to ask, that the effects of driving while high differ from the effects of driving while drunk? Because you're not really going to do a controlled study where you're going to get people drunk and high and put them behind the wheel of a car. Well, actually, at Ohio State, we do have a simulation Oh, um, my goodness. I think I know with Honda. I haven't done that yet, although we do have it would be possible to do simulations where you do that, where we often get 
where it is often problematic is to obtain the cannabis for the stimulations. So right now, um, if you get, if you're funded by the federal government to do research like this, you actually have to get your cannabis from a farm in Mississippi. And their THC content is incredibly, incredibly low to what we are actually seeing out in the market. So to use that, it wouldn't even really give us the effects that we would want to see. And so, you know, that is part of the problem. So you can do it. Um, we recommend that you not try this as an experiment on your own. Oh, no. <laughs> Just I have to say that, you know, that's also the mom and me as well. <laughs> but what we do see that there are problems um, partly because people get a little bit disconnected from reality when they're using cannabis. And so what you can see is happening is they'll be overconfident on the road. The other thing we see is, is kind of the opposite of that. There are also people who can get really paranoid when they're using cannabis. And those are the people that you might see who are you know, driving way slower than they need to be on certain roads because they're really, really concerned. And both of those, depending on the roads, can be a problem. One of the things, though, for impaired driving in general that you really want to think about is the roads that you're going on. So roads that are more tricky, that are more complicated, getting on and off freeways is much more difficult when you're impaired. And so if you're driving a long way and you're going on the freeways, um, that could be a problem. You know, places that aren't well lit, backcountry roads can also be problematic as well because you're not going to have the same reaction time. So you're going to want to think about those things um, when you're planning, if you're going to be driving after using cannabis. I have to circle back to this. So there, there are studies at Ohio, like there are studies where you get somebody drunk and then have them work a simulation or you get yeah. high and then you try to drive the simulation. Yes. That is, that is wild actually. I, that, I will tell you that's when it is fun to do substance use research. The other, there's also, um, there are also, in some places there are bar simulations where people will they'll put people in sort of like that's an observation bar to mimic what it's like in a bar setting and see how much they drink and how different factors relate to how much they drink so yeah and i do want to talk about mixing cannabis with alcohol because that will change your ability to drive as well don't do it 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 really anytime you have more than one substance in your system doesn't matter what it is but it becomes a huge prob problem for your ability to have the hand-eye motor coordination, um, to be able to drive safely. And so it is, and quite frankly, um, in some studies I've done, particularly looking at alcohol use, you know, 90% of the people who report using cannabis are also using alcohol. Whether it's at the same time or not, we don't know, but that's a really high number. And when you combine the two of those, the effects are, are really severe. Because they can kind of build off each other, right? They work in concert, so you can end up feeling more drunk slash high than you would doing one or the other. Yes. I want to finally talk a little bit about how we identify drivers under the influence of marijuana. Because it has. It lives in your system for so much longer. I think this is one of the most, one of the biggest challenges in policing driving while high. Is that fair? It, it absolutely is. And they've made some remarkable progress over the last five years trying to develop tests and assays to be able to identify that. Um, right now they're using oral fluids, so mostly saliva, but it's not a fail-proof way. And they're still, the sensitivity of the tests are getting better. 
but they're not necessarily where we would want them to be. Um, and again, unlike alcohol, we've had decades and decades to develop these tests. And it's only been relatively recently that we've even really tried to go into, and not just cannabis, but to other illicit drugs as well. Yeah, I guess that's true when you think about how long we've prohibited driving while drunk and how long we've actually had breathalyzers and blood tests. Yes. And again, when you're out in the field, you're a police officer, you've stopped someone who looks like they're impaired, you know, that's much different. You're probably not going to take a blood sample there. You're probably not going to take a urine sample. It's probably going to be saliva. So it's really important that, you know, those are the tests that we're trying to make better so that we have better estimates of what people have in their system at the time. So I know we've touched on it before, but I, I want to kind of reiterate for folks, what's uh, what are your best practices for people who want to go and consume cannabis safely and then drive home? So I, I think it's very similar to what we recommend for alcohol. If you can use a ride share, if you can have someone be a designated driver, those are going to be your safest options, obviously. Um, if, you, if it's not safe to drive, wait, you know, wait four to six hours until you're feeling better um, or feeling more like yourself and the effect of the cannabis has has gone away, do that. Um, and then plan your routes carefully, you know, routes that are a little slower, um, you know, fewer curbs, things like that. that. That matters too when you're driving while under the influence. That was Bridget Freisteller, a professor in the College of Social Work at Ohio State University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And I want to share a special event coming up at WOSU. Our next dialogue program with OSU's Glenn College of Public Affairs will look at the changing world of college sports. And who better to talk about expanding the Big Ten, the transfer portal, NIL, than retiring OSU Athletic Director Gene Smith. I'm moderating the discussion with him and OSU women's volleyball coach Jen Flynn Tuesday, February 27th. It's going to be at 6 p.m. here at WOSU, and you can register for it at WOSU.org events. Coming up on Wellness Wednesday, we're talking about late night snacking and why it might not be such a great idea. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Anna Staber. Let's face it, we've all heard the siren call of our refrigerator late at night. You're alone. It's dark. No one is around to ask whether you really need that second sleeve of Girl Scout cookies. But late night snacking may have more of an impact than you think. Here to explain what the research says about our after dark eating habits is Frank Shear, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, 
who studies sleep and circadian disorders. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you for having uh, me, Anna. You've made a career studying why we don't sleep. So I want to ask, what first drew you to this line of work? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, uh, as a young um, college student, I wanted to understand the brain better. And at one point, I was lucky enough to get an interview with a number of people at the Netherlands Institute for Brain Research. And one stood out who was talking about this tiny nucleus in our in the middle of our brain, the size of a pinhead, but which influences virtually all aspects of our physiology and of our life. And this is the uh, the central circadian pacemaker. And uh, that was just fascinating to me. And eventually you began investigating things like whether s- late night snacking gets in the way of those rhythms. Is that fair? Right. So uh, the initial interest was on cardiovascular control, uh, but very quickly it became apparent that metabolism, including glucose control, which is relevant for diabetes risk, as well as weight regulation relevant to obesity risk, uh, is very strongly influenced by this circadian system. And so I have to to ask, why does the time that we eat matter when everything else is kept constant? Like if I, if I eat the same thing one day to the next, but why does it matter what time I'm doing it? Right. One way to look at this is that our body is not the same in the morning and the evening. So we we have a very different response to, in this particular case, in, to meals. And so we've shown that, for example, in the morning, if you're exposed to eating the same meal, that your glucose levels don't rise as high as in the evening. And we found that this is not just due to when in the sleep-wake cycle you're measuring this or relative to how long you've been physically inactive or active or environmental light, but in fact, uh, to a very large degree, thanks to this internal body clock. One of the things I read in some of the research you've done is that melatonin actually dampens the secretion of insulin. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So others had uh, shown this prior to us as well. And actually in uh, 2008 and 2009, there was a big uh, shakeup in the diabetes field because it was discovered that one particular genetic variant that relates to one of the melatonin receptors is a diabetes risk variant. Uh, And so we followed up on this uh, together with uh, Richa Saxena and Marta Garaulet. This is slightly off topic, but melatonin is a really popular supplement for people to help them sleep. Then should we be concerned about long-term daily use of it? I believe so. I think we should at least be cautious about and understand what it does. And so it's not all good uh, because uh, in the early days, uh, there was this notion that oh, melatonin is a mar- miracle hormone, uh, but it should be understand understood that a hormone has many effects and in this case it's true for melatonin as well and so while it may uh, facilitate sleep during the day or uh, related to jet lag uh, it also has effects on glucose control and including as you said on insulin release and 
snacking at night is pretty common. A recent study of 34,000 Americans found that 60% of us regularly open the refrigerator after 9 after 9 p.m. So it's safe to say that um, the people who open the pantry late at night, they're not in the minority of Americans. Right. That's the scary thing. <laughs> in, for those who have to eat later, let's say shift workers, are there things that they can change to reduce those risk factors? Yeah, excellent question. So we, um, and this was together with Sarah Shalapa, who's now an uh, associate uh, professor uh, at um, Southampton University in the UK. When she was doing her postdoc with me, she investigated this very question. So the approach we took was to test whether even if people mistime their sleep-wake cycle and the rest activity cycle, uh, whether if we restrain, restrict the food intake to the biological day, so the internal circadian day, if this, this can be beneficial in preventing uh, what we know to be many adverse cardiovascular and other uh, effects, metabolic effects. And so this was published uh, in Science Advances a few years ago, where we found that indeed, if people this, uh, who are still engaged in simulated night work are eating just during the biological day. They don't show the same negative effects. And this, those negative effects that normally would be seen would include uh, changes in uh, glucose tolerance, so decreases in the ability to, um, to lower glucose after intake uh, of a meal, uh, uh, improvements also of their mood. So with circadian misalignment in this simulated night work condition, we also see that uh, anxiety-related and depressive-related moods are increasing, and those also can be uh, prevented by this daytime food intake. Uh, and thirdly, unpublished yet, we also see beneficial effects on cardiovascular-related uh, measures. That brings me to uh, something I, I think people who snack at night, particularly as we age, might be familiar with, which is heartburn. So uh, the later you eat, the more likely you are to, to have it bubble back up. Right. And so, yeah, heartburn is something that, um, like you say, is, is quite uh, common when people eat late and increases with, with aging. Um, the way to think about that is, uh, in a way, pretty straightforward, at least on the superficial layer, which is that if you transition to a supine posture, so you lay flat, then of course, gravity is no longer uh, keeping the acid in the stomach. And this can then spill over out into the, uh, into, uh, and, and cause into the mouth and cause uh, the, the sensation of uh, acid reflux um, as well uh, as heartburn. And does it have any impact on sleep disruption? Like, would I be less likely to enter REM sleep, more likely to wake up at night if I'm snacking right before bed? Right. That's an excellent question. And one that uh, has been asked a lot, but hasn't been answered very clearly yet. So there are surprisingly few studies that have studied this uh, very carefully. There are many association studies where people link one with uh, observation with the other. But experimental studies are few. The, the few that have done this well 
have found some effects, uh, negative effects on sleep, but they're not as dramatic as one may expect. Uh, and they depend, they get worse the closer the meal is uh, to the sleep onset. And there are some effects also on uh, on the content of that uh, meal. So practically speaking, then, how many hours before I go to bed should I have my last meal? So one uh, way to think about this, uh, thinking now again about uh, melatonin's role, is we know very well, uh, based on hundreds of uh, uh, investigations, that people's melatonin levels typically start to rise anywhere between about four and, let's say, uh, four hours and a half an hour before uh, habitual bedtime, or let's say four and zero hours before your typical bedtime. Um, and so if you want to prevent the co-occurrence of food intake with melatonin, then ideally you wouldn't eat in the last four hours before your habitual bedtime. So if I, I normally go to bed around 10, so then I should stop eating around six. Correct. And so, you know, and I think also there one can think about this as kind of a, um, a gradient in the sense that uh, if you would ideally do it uh, four hours before bedtime, but practically speaking, three hours may be more achievable. So there are benefits even to doing it two or three hours beforehand. Yeah, so experimentally, those kind of nuances haven't been uh, looked at in that way. But it is uh, we do see a relationship between um, uh, the the time of food intake and how how bad it is, uh, and it also depends on the outcome measure one looks at. Um, so this is related to glucose control. Uh, melatonin is not the only player there regarding the circadian system. There are other players. And there are other outcomes, such as those related to weight regulation, cardiovascular risk, mood, etc. Is there any data on how age may play a role? Um, because I know our circadian rhythms change from early childhood to teenagers to adults to older adults. So does this recommendation sort of, is it different for, say, a 16-year-old than a 66-year-old? I would say uh, to this day, those recommendations would be very similar uh, regardless of age. So, um, and if we look at the, in very carefully controlled studies in very healthy uh, older individuals, there's no difference in, for example, the circadian period, which is the cycle length. So the duration it takes to go uh, across a full cycle between young and old uh, adults, there is some data that suggests that maybe in adolescence, there might be a lengthening of the the period of this cycle length, which may help explain why uh, adolescents are often very hard to get out of bed in the morning and don't like to go to bed uh, in the evening. Uh, that's one factor. There are some other factors uh, at play there uh, as well. Many of them are behavioral of course, as you might understand. Uh, but there are some biological underpinnings of that as well. And all of this really comes down to the importance of getting a good night's sleep. So as someone who has spent his career studying why we don't sleep, uh, why is it so important to get that solid like eight hours? Well, the list is actually quite long. Uh, <laughs> 
So 20 minutes here wouldn't be enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, suffice to say that uh, if we look at physiological function, uh, brain function, all aspects uh, are impaired with uh, impairment of, of sleep. And this is impairment of sleep quality or uh, shortening of sleep duration. Um, and so investigators initially were looking for the single answer. What is the function of sleep? And the actual answer is, well, there are a whole myriad of, of functions uh, of sleep. And wherever you look, you will find sleep as a beneficial effect. Um, and so... Uh, Mental health, physical health, like actual like repair of cells all of that right all all of the above yeah so so one of the interesting um, more recent observations is now some years ago but is the realization that during sleep the brain is being detoxified and so this relates directly to risk for alzheimer's disease so just like we have a uh, a lymph system in our body, we have a glymphatic system, as it's uh, called in the brain, which opens up at night during sleep and helps clear out toxins, uh, which then decreases uh, the risk for uh, the development of Alzheimer's disease, for example. Knowing what we know now, after talking with you about why we shouldn't be opening the fridge late at night, it's it's not always that easy. You know, you've had a hard day, you finally got the kids to sleep, and you know, you know that there's ice cream in their freezer. Right. <laughs> that it willpower is, is hard to develop. That willpower. Yeah. So one of the approaches, uh, and, and Marcus and I were just talking about this before, is to remove some of that that temptation. So the decision already starts in the store. So what are you going to bring back home? And then where do you put it? How close do you, you know, do, do you put it in front of you uh, or not, etc. So there are many kind of psychological steps, uh, which can help you uh, in in self control. And of course, um, one interesting observation we, we recently made is that chronotype really relates to um, to eating habits uh, as well. So people with delayed uh, chronotypes, so who tend to go to bed later and have a hard time waking up in the morning, uh, tend to be more emotional eaters. Hmm. And so with other words, uh, what may work very easily for one person may not necessarily work as well for another person. It's always, there's never a simple, straightforward answer <laughs> that works for everyone. Uh, my Unfortunately, last not. <laughs> my last question is, does the quality of the food make a difference? I don't know if your research has ever got that granular, but, you know, I might start by saying to myself, OK, if I want a snack, I'm going to get like an apple with some peanut butter instead of peanut butter pretzels. Right. Well, there's a lot of literature that is uh, has shown very clearly that if you look at glucose control, the food content matters a great deal. So, um fast sugars, for example, added sugars, they are generally speaking, uh, causing a very rapid spike of, of sugar in your blood. So blood glucose, uh, which is detrimental, uh, as opposed to if you have uh, slower uh, uh, carbohydrates. So uh, also, oh, go ahead. 
Oh, just to say that that just also the percentage of carbohydrates in the food uh, matter, and even the sequence in which you eat your food items matter. So, for example, if you eat your high carbohydrate food items first, and then you eat your leafy vegetables, etc., your glucose uh, will increase much more dramatically as opposed to if you flip the order. Hmm. That's why you get the salad first. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it also sounds like if we are going to be snacking at night, we should reach for maybe low glycemic index foods, maybe carrots, cucumbers, bell peppers, something something yes, that isn't exactly. going to spike your blood sugar. Exactly. So something to chew on that won't uh, have such a negative effect. That was Frank Shear, a professor of medicine at Harvard School of <clears throat> a professor at the Harvard School of Medicine and the director of the medical chronobiology program in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Wow, that is a mouthful of a title. But thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, we're talking about new research into the differences in how men and women respond to resistance training. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. It seems like everyone is looking for an easy way to be a little bit faster, healthier, more alert. There's a reason the global market for supplements is worth more than $150 billion a year. But for all their claims and devotees, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of scientific evidence that they work. Here to help us navigate the wild world of supplements is Alex Hutchinson, who covers science and fitness for Outside Magazine. Welcome back to All Sides. Thanks, Anna. I want to start with the most studied performance aid on the planet, caffeine. The results for whether it improves our performance is, well, mixed. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it it does work for most people in a lot of different contexts, but it doesn't work for everybody. There's there, it, We all metabolize caffeine differently, and some of us uh, metabolize it very quickly, others metabolize it very slowly. And so when, when people do studies, actually, it, the average effect is good, but some people actually get slower or get worse on, on caffeine. And it can also upset your stomach. You can be caffeine sensitive. There are, there are negatives to taking caffeine. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, even the positives can be too positive. If you get too amped up or too, you know, your heart's racing before, you know, everyone's had the, or many people have had the experience of having one cup too many of coffee. Yeah. Uh, but it's still in most pre-workouts that I see on the market. Almost every one of them comes with some form of a caffeinated product in it. Yeah, I mean, it it does work for a lot of people. Un unlike ninety nine point nine percent of the of the ingredients in a pre-workout su workout supplement, 
caffeine is probably the one thing that does work and that and that you can detect it, it, it is working. You can feel the, the, the difference. I have to ask, is there any way of knowing if I'm one of those people that would actually lower their performance? Like, how would I how would I pick up on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and the, basically, the answer is no, not without a genetic test. Um, <laughs> they, they've done a bunch of studies to see if because when you tell people this, that, oh, some people are fast metabolizers, some people are slow metabolizers, everyone is convinced that they know what their response is. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, I feel it right away. Or, oh, it takes me a lot more than other people. But in fact, it turns out to uh, when people are unable to guess what, what their metabolism profile is. Gotcha. So there's no quick and easy way to figure that out. Um, I want to talk about marginal gains before we get into some of the supplements. And these are a real thing when it comes to professional athletes. And I think sometimes we like supplements because we all sort of fancy ourselves to be professional athletes, at least in our own heads, if that makes sense. Everyone's looking for an edge and, and you know, including me, like we, we all want to be a little bit better than we are. Um, if you happen to be competing in the Olympic 100 meters, then if you can get 0.1% better, that could change your life. I mean, that, that, could, that could completely alter your profile. And so it's natural for professional athletes to be doing everything they can for these marginal gains. But you have to ask, if I was 0.1% better at you know typing or whatever, would that actually make a difference in my life? Yeah, I like what you wrote in the article, is that we all have limited time, energy, and resources. And dedicating these to performance hacks can distract you from training, recovering, eating, sleeping well. Yeah, I mean, there's... A, a, I think this is an underappreciated point that you might say, oh, I take a multivitamin just in case I don't manage to pack vegetables in my lunch today. But there's really fascinating research on something called the licensing effect, which shows that by taking a multivitamin, you've kind of given yourself permission to say, oh, I don't need to worry about having a healthy lunch. I'm just going to get a burger because I took a multivitamin. I'm covering my bases. So by pursuing these hacks, often we're actually undercutting the basics that work much better. You also wrote about supplements becoming a bit of a crutch, and you describe a cyclist who dropped his water bottle and felt that, you know, killed his performance, but arguably it probably wouldn't have been necessary for the rest of the race. Yeah, I, th I think often we start to, we develop dependencies, or, or it's what psych psychologists call an external locus of control. We think that our success is not a result of the hard work we did or our talent or, or our effort, but because we took the right pill or, or you know, used the right... Um, you know, magical ingredient. And the problem is then if you, if you, if you forget to take your pill or if you drop your water bottle, you think, oh no, I, there's no possible way I can, I can perform. Whereas in fact, the, the power was always within you, not within that pill. Yeah. There's a lot of research in psychology around anxiety that comes to similar conclusions that coping mechanisms can increase anxiety in the long run because like you're afraid of getting insomnia, so you create a routine, like you read a book, you journal, you use the same hand lotion before bed, but those very quickly become like, I'm sleeping because I'm doing this. It's like, not that I'm sleeping because I need to sleep. And it sounds like the same thing can happen with uh, supplements and sports enhancers. Yeah. And it, I mean, you could make a parallel even to, there's research on why athletes are so superstitious. A lot of them have lucky charms and they start to associate, you know, the, the, doing their warm-up in a certain way or having a certain piece of their uniform. You know, Michael Jordan apparently wore his college shorts under his professional uniform his whole career. And that's fine until you forget the, the lucky charm. Yeah, my, uh, my husband played football in high school, and there was a guy who wouldn't change his socks. And I'm just like, oh, no. I, I had some lucky garments, but I, I'll spare you the, the gruesome details. <laughs> um, so... 
when it comes to figuring out whether you know you go into GNC or even to like the grocery store aisle in Kroger and there's so many supplements out there there's a whole world of supplements out there um, you know from proteins to creatines to I mean Gatorade even is technically a supplement how do we navigate that yeah I, I have a pretty good rule of thumb that can help guide you through it which is it probably doesn't work Just, <laughs> you know it's a very short very simple you don't have to write it down um, the, the truth is the vast majority of supplements uh, if they have evidence of all at all that they work, it's it's very flawed evidence by people who are funded by the companies making the supplement and are producing cherry picked results. And not even intentionally; they might mean well, but they're uh, they're tiny studies. There's a very short list of supplements that have been demonstrated to enhance performance. Caffeine, as we talked about before, is one of them. Creatine is another one for for strength training. A lot of strength uh, enthusiasts use that, and it and it does have some evidence that it works. Um, Beet juice uh, for endurance athletes is another uh, obscure one, and even baking soda can counteract the acidity of hard exercise. Though that's basically the list. And the when the International Olympic Committee did a, a consensus statement on what actually works for athletic performance, those are the four they came up with: beet juice, baking soda, caffeine, <laughs> and creatine. Yeah, and that's, creatine. That, that, and that's so, so fascinating. The other sixteen aisles of the, the supplement store, you, you can just walk right past. And you make a really good point in the article that I do want to uh, bring up for our listeners is that if there was something that would give you three, four, five percent improved performance, we would have, I mean, it would we would have heard about it. Yeah, and and you know, I, I can imagine there are some listeners that are sitting there thinking, I am sure that you know I've seen research that says this other supplement that I like does give a one percent performance or something, and we could have endless arguments as to what the evidence actually says about plus half a percent, minus half a percent. And that goes back to what we were saying at the top. Like, okay, if it's so, if the, if the, if the benefits are so small that we can't, despite, you know, decades of research, we can't demonstrate the benefits, those benefits probably don't matter. It, it's like, and the example from the running world is that we had new running shoes with uh, uh, carbon plate, carbon plates embedded in them that improved uh, running efficiency by about 4% or if it, you know, um, marathon times by let's say two or 3%. That completely upended the sport. Every world record is gone. That's for two or 3%. So the fact that we're not seeing similar effects from whatever the latest supplement du jour is tells me that those effects are even smaller. It's going to be half, even if they do work, which is a big if, it's going to be a tiny effect. I want to shift our conversation to another area that isn't studied as well as perhaps it should be. And that's what women need when it comes to weightlifting. So you recently reported on a systematic review of research on resistant training in healthy young women because it turns out that there's been a longstanding assumption that the needs of females could be extrapolated from studying men. Yeah, I mean, that's if, if you go back in the history of, of strength training for women, fitness advice used to be very patronizing and, you know, uh, I, I found an article that where they were uh, of fitness advice from a century ago, where the advice was try pulling a cork out of a bottle. That's the workout you need to do, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, which is obviously not not very productive. But and not something you do on a regular basis. Well, it depends. Yeah, if you pull too many corks out of the bottle, your fitness is probably not going in the right direction. But but uh, you know, as as we moved away from that sort of patronizing attitude that that women can exercise in, in normal ways. It was just assumed that, well, whatever research we've done on men, we can just apply it to women. 
Um, and and more recently, people have realized that actually, you know, as as one of the catchphrases goes, you know, women aren't just small men. There are physiological differences, um, uh, differences in body shape, body composition, hormones uh, that may affect how they respond to strength training. So the question is, you know, if if men are supposed to do three sets of twelve reps of of an exer of a strength training exercise, is that also the optimal strength routine for women? Yeah, and one of the things that you noted is that the research is early, but it looks like women should be doing more reps, perhaps. So yeah, there was a there was a meta analysis by by researchers from around the world who was published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research that basically tried to collect all the data that was specific to women on how they respond to strength training. The 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 thing we should start out by saying is that there isn't a lot of research, so we're dealing with, as you said, we're dealing with very early results at this point. Um, one of the patterns that 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 they came up with was that actually it, it, the the number of sets of of exercise per week is a little higher than what they've come up with from the men's research, and you can come up with reasons for that. There are some studies that seem to suggest that women's they may have a, a slightly lower maximum response uh, strength if you look at their individual muscle fibers, but they fatigue more slowly. They have better endurance, so maybe women would benefit from doing more sets than men but i would i would uh strongly caution that we don't uh advise women to rush out there and start doubling their, their workouts but it's just it's an example of the kind of thing that we'll only learn by doing more research specific to women not to bring it back to uh sky psychology again but this is another area where men were often used to develop diagnostic criteria for mental illnesses and other conditions and what we know now is that they present differently in women i think the scientific community generally in the last like couple of decades was like, oh, maybe that wasn't the right way to go about that. I, I think, you know, there's, there's probably stages of recognition and, and we've reached the stage where I think most researchers understand that we need more research in women, but it takes a long time to actually do that research. And, and we're still a long way from having, you know, equivalent bodies of knowledge in both men and women. Yeah, one of the things that you say would be helpful would be to give men and women the same kinds of workout routines and see how they perform over time. And we've never really, doesn't seem like we've done a lot of head-to-head -head comparisons. Yeah, because we end up with a sort of apples to oranges, like in this meta-analysis that we were discussing. There's some studies in women and there's some studies in men, but they're not doing the same workouts. And so we're indirectly trying to figure out whether that we should be advising Difference because we don't want to have differences just for this arbitrary sake of differences. We only want to be giving different advice if it actually matters. And to do that, you need to have studies where men and women do the same workouts and see if they and how they respond, and then and then manipulate some of the variables. And even within that, there's a whole host of uh, different considerations. So I read Stacy Sims' book Roar a while back, and that actually focuses on nutrition and training for women specifically. And the book dives into these questions like how hormonal birth control might impact your training, where you are in your cycle, and how you might need to prioritize your nutrition differently. There's like there's a whole world of questions out there about how women exercise. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important to, that we get answers to those questions because that's another topic that I've, I've, I've written. There have been a bunch of meta-analyses and, and research on this question of, for instance, should women do different types of workouts at different part, times in their menstrual cycle? Because the hormone hormonal milieu is quite different. Um, and my, my take so far is that actually the differences are quite subtle, that you don't necessarily need to do completely different workouts at different times in the month. But we need to find out. 
Yeah, I think that may end up being a little bit like supplements where for an elite Olympic athlete, that might have more benefit than, say, for me, like a casual distance runner. I think that's absolutely that. That would be my prediction, and so we don't want to overcomplicate things needlessly, you know, because it does have a cost. Just like with the supplements, you 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 only have a finite amount of mental energy, if nothing else, and so you don't want to make things more complicated than they need to be. Yeah, I went down a rabbit hole on like whether we should be eating different nutritionally depending on where we are in our cycle, and oh my goodness, does that get confusing quick? <laughs> Trying to eat healthily is complicated enough as it is, so yeah, we don't need extra extra turns of the screw. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back to the supplements because we got an email from Stephen Columbus. And I don't know if this is within your area of expertise, but he was wondering about the efficacy of other supplements like memory enhancement supplements. Do they sort of fall under that same consideration? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, my impression is uh, probably they do. There have been some interesting studies in the last few months that suggested that maybe some of these supplements can help. Um but until until I see like five different major studies over long term, any any individual study can be a fluke. So look, I I worry about memory and my parent for my parents. There's nothing that I have them taking or that I'm taking right now. But I remain open. The important thing is not to. I don't want to be the guy who's like nothing works and therefore I'm never going to pay attention to the research. It's possible we'll watch the research, uh, but for now I don't think there's any like super smoking guns. Yeah, and I think it's also important to mention that there's not a ton of regulation on supplement quality. I believe it I believe it might have been the FDA that tested melatonin and discovered like some melatonin products had way more, some had way less, some had none at all. So sometimes when we actually look at like what's in the bottle versus what's on the label, it ends up being two totally different things. That's a that's a super important point uh, because there is very poor regulation and often if you it, like pre, going back to pre-workout supplements, if you're like, oh, I'm sure this one worked, there's a good chance it's because it has like amphetamines in it. There's there's a huge proportion of of uh, workout supplements that end up with banned substances or that, that shouldn't be in there. That was Alex Hutchinson, who covers science and fitness for Outside Magazine. Thank you so much for your conversation today. Thanks, Hannah. And that'll do it for this hour of Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. Thank you for listening to 89.7. NPR News.